Sounds good. Good morning and welcome to Love Babs, Love Talk on WNHH-FM, New Haven's home for community radio. You are usually listening at this time of the day to Babs Rolls Ivy, the inimitable host of Love Babs, Love Talk. She's off at a writing workshop week, loving nature, getting spiritually recharged, and I'm Paul Bass, sitting in to keep the news flowing and the tunes going. Our guest this morning, just kick off the morning, is someone who is... Uh, Always making headlines in New Haven. She's making them more later this morning after she talks to us. U.S. Representative Rosa DeLauro. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Rosa. It's so nice oh, to see you. Wonderful to see you, my friend. It's great to see you. Great music. Do you know who that is? That's a local band, the Afro-Semitic Experience. Huh. David Chevin. They've been around 20 years where they do black spiritual gospels and Jewish liturgical music updated with jazz. And they go all Oh, my God. Country. They're so <laughs> good. Great. <laughs> great to dance to yeah yeah and actually you're a tap dancer i remember that i love it that's yeah. right oh <laughs> well on a more serious note yesterday was on national equity pay day and uh rosa deloro's quote yesterday was women should not have to wait until well into the new year for their earnings to catch up to the earnings of men from the previous year equal pay day should be december 31st not well into march and to that end Rosa and uh, U.S. Senator Patty Murray have reintroduced a bill called the Paycheck Fairness Act, which aims to get rid of pay discrimination. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that bill does, Rosa, and why you're introducing it? Sure. Uh, f first of all, thanks very much. This is such a, a, a very, very serious economic issue um, of, for, for women across the, uh, across the country. And, and particularly when I talk about single women, this is women who are <clears throat> single, widowed, divorced, or separated. They are the least secure economically, um, uh, the least secure demographic economically in the country. And uh, across the country, uh, women and those even who work part-time, part of the year are paid 77 cents uh, for every dollar paid to a man. Uh, that's a gap of almost $12,000. Uh, a year. So what, what the Paycheck Fairness Bill does uh, is protects against a retaliation for discussing salaries with co-workers. Um, it prohibits employers from screening job applicants based on their salary history or requiring a salary history during the interview or hiring process. Um, and it, 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 it uh, uh, provides employees uh, who file a sex-based wage um, uh, uh, discrimination claim under the Equal Pay Act. It's the same remedies as are available to employees uh, who file uh, race or ethnicity based on wage discrimination. And they can participate in class action suits that challenge systemic pay discrimination. Um, uh, so it, it really is, is about recognizing a very, very simple premise. Men and women in the same job deserve the same pay. And we're looking at legislation um, that would um, uh, uh, just state that in federal law. I'm trying to remember, Rosa, back in the 70s when we started hearing more about this issue. There used to be buttons people put with what the cents on the dollar were. Do you happen to remember 
It's 70 cents now on the dollar that women compared to men earning the same right. job. Do you remember what it was? It was in the 60s back then? Yeah, I, it may have even gone 60s. to, a, you know, maybe even a little bit less than that. I don't remember the exact number. But when you talk about the 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 amount of time it takes uh, for, uh, for for women to, uh, to to make what a man is making, and it goes until March, uh, for women of color, that is in even a longer period of time because the statistics about, um, uh, you know, women, women of color are just unbelievable. You know, it's uh, white women, it's 77 cents for every dollar that's paid to a man. Black women, 64 cents. Latinas, 54 cents. Native American women, 51 cents. Asian Pacific Islander women, uh, 80 cents. So, uh, uh, we have moved, yes, but th that's the pay gap still exists, Paul, and that's something that we have to really address and make sure it no longer exists. I don't celebrate. Uh, I don't think we should celebrate, you, you know, equal pay day. We need to get rid of it, you know, and and, and just make sure that uh, men and women in the same job des deserve the same pay. Rosa, why is it that women get paid less for the same work? Well, you you know, I I think it's um. It's as much cultural as anything else. You know, there's a sense that um, uh, somehow women's work is less respected. Uh, it's less recognized as value um, uh, in, in, in our country. And it is uh, long past due that this mindset, you know, changes. Now, when I talk about 77 cents on the dollar, there are only two professions where this is not the military pays men uh -huh. and women the same, except uh -huh. for combat pay. You, you know, if you're in combat, your pay goes up. The other thing is you, the U.S. Congress. Men and women in the Congress are paid mm. the same amount of money. You know, no matter where you come from, no matter what your skill set is, no matter what your philosophies are. So why isn't it true for uh, uh, university women who are university professors, uh, for women who are journalists, for museum directors, the whole nine yards. It's, it's it's cultural that somehow women's work is not as important or valued as the work that men do, which is nonsense. I know, and I was thinking so culturally, obviously from childhood, right? These cultural values get imbued from childhood where men are encouraged to speak up more, is that correct? And That's true. And women, are, and they're considered more important what they do. Right, but the other thing is what, what, about the uh, of the uh, uh, paycheck fairness bill is there is a, a uh, there is a, a negotiation a, a, there's built in the the honing of negotiation skills for women and for girls and negotiating their salaries you know and and uh, and, and in fact because of low pay for women one of the things that we get rid of here is that the 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 requirement that you have to talk about your salary history, you know, and, and you know that has put you know women in real jeopardy when it comes to what their future salary will be. The most incredible thing is about this because your 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 social security retirement is based on your salary history. So women who make less, then you're looking at less in terms of social security and retirement income. And today you will find that one of the highest demo, demographics of of, of, of groups in poverty, it's older women. Why, why is it different in the military and in Congress? I mean, Congress doesn't have a history of an enlightened gender place. Well, you know, I, 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 I sense, and I've said this before, because I've got so many of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle who don't wanna, um, you know, support 
uh, the Paycheck Fairness Act. So over the years, we passed this four times in the House, and wow. we passed it with with, with with Republican support. We have not been able to pass it in the Senate. Um, so what's the holdup in the Senate? Well, again, it is this view that this is not a legitimate issue. Mm-hmm. That uh, 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 you know, they give you all kinds of reasons that women take time off to have children, and that we, they're not sure that they're going to stay, and um, uh, that it goes back to the er- earlier view that men were the breadwinners. Well, my God, society has changed. The workforce has changed. No, when you, talk the, the workplace, you know, so. when you talked about negotiation, it flashed back my mind a bunch of years ago when I was, we, we usually hire people who are from New Haven, but there were two right. examples where a man and a woman who had left New Haven were coming back and they were in the same stages in their career. And one of them, you know, I would say, what, what kind of salary are you looking for? And she said, well, what, what are you paying? And I named the numbers. She said, okay. And I said, no, you're supposed to start and say, then name a larger number. <laughs> and then I go, we go in the middle. And the male just immediately asked for $10,000 more. Yeah, right. No, it, it, it's, it's a fact. You know, it, it's this reticence to stand your ground, you know, and under it's it's about understanding your own worth and mm-hmm. value, valuing your own worth. You and know? we're talking yeah. to Rosa DeLauro, the congresswoman from the 3rd U.S. Congressional District, who has reintroduced the Patty Murray of Washington, the Equal, the Paycheck Fairness Act, to try to close the gap from uh, that women earn on average compared to men for the same jobs. Do you have any good stories to stick out in your mind of somebody either you know who's in the public eye or someone you know who has struggled with this? Oh, well, you know, I, I, I can recall when, when we've done so many events around this issue that this woman came to testify and she and her husband were working in the same uh, organization, same skill sets. They were you know, high tech people, computer people, etc. And she did not know that she was being paid less than he was. And she only knew it because the, in, the, in the mail, the information came, she saw, you, you know, the mail that he received about what his salary was. And then she saw her salary and she said, we were in the same jobs. Why? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a real life, real life case. And, and the, for me, the, the, a critical piece here is a, is a woman who I believe is iconic, and that's Lily Ledbetter, who after 24 years working at Goodyear, uh, as she was leaving, she was tipped off that she was being pe- paid less than the, 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 her male colleague next to her for the very, very same job. And Willie, uh, Lily had the courage to take it to the Supreme Court, uh, where she won her case, uh, but uh, then they determined that... Uh, 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 they they rolled back what she was. She, she had she got nothing from the the uh, the, the uh, decision that she was discriminated right. for all those years. The court ruled that um, she didn't file the claim um, uh, after a, a certain number of years or a certain period okay. of time. Well, she had no idea. That's where we we won in the Congress. We did the Fair Pay Act. We won that. But that just left things as they are. You, you know, and that you you, you could claim this uh, 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 discrimination at any stage. It's you know, when you find out about it that you're being discriminated against on your wages. Uh, Rosie, so you spoke. Case, you spoke about the attitude stemming from the idea as the male is the breadwinner. You grew up in a household where both the mother and the father worked. That's right. And that was back in the uh, 50s, correct? 40s. Oh my God! Yes, yeah. My mom worked. 
you know, as I, as you know, she worked in the old sweatshops. And there again, in, in, in that jurisdiction, you know, these women were paid less than, than the men who worked there. You know, they, they, men were cutters or so, so forth. But they, you know, the, the work that the women did and being paid less for it was just outrageous. Do you remember that as a kid? Was that spoken about? Uh, I, I, I know that, you know, my mom was a garment worker and, you know, she, she you know, was a, 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 the Garment Workers Union. So in that, in that instance, you know, the uh, workers' rights and workers' protection, particularly there was workplace safety. And that, you know, so I don't recall all of it, but I do know that um, uh, you know, she would later talk to me about how women were underpaid. You know, when, I, when I think about how women are paid less now, I'm also thinking about the impact of the pandemic. So a lot of women were working in, in, in frontline jobs, but more women than men, if I'm not mistaken, did drop out of the workforce during the pandemic for whatever reasons, because of the nature of their jobs or the kids they're taking care of. And now they're re-entering the workforce, as I understand it, yeah. in larger numbers now because they were out more. They're re-entering the workforce at a time when the Federal Reserve Bank is trying to act as much as it can to stop wages from rising because they believe that part of what's fueling inflation. Do I have that right? And is that like a double whammy for women's wages? Well, it's a double whammy. And first of all, to say that women didn't uh, opt out of the workforce during the pandemic, they were pushed out of the workforce. And in addition to that, one of the biggest reasons was childcare. Right. Um, and not the accessibility of childcare. But now they are entering the workforce now with greater growth. And it's more about single women but the, the, still the pay is 77 cents and that's what has to that's what has to change i just and, mean in addition to what you're doing with the bill i'm wondering if the impact of federal reserve de yes. decisions is also going to hurt women when they're coming back because there has been this rise in wages and you know robert rice has been writing about how they think that we have this conventional wisdom now that it's bad when labor costs rise because they fuel inflation and he argued it had more to do with deficits rising from that taxing corporations and high earners enough do you have any right. thoughts on that and if this factors into this issue? Well, I think it does factor into, into the situation because there's a view that you can, you know, hold back on wage increases. And and then uh, as it is historic, that women are at that, you know, that lower end of the scale where they don't feel that they have to pay, you know, women is what they are paying men, you know, for the for, for the same job. So it absolutely plays into, you know, what 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 the uh, uh you know, what happens? Uh, the fact is that now, though, I think that there's greater uh, understanding that we have to close this wage gap. First of all, with regard to wages, one of the biggest problems that have been facing uh, uh, workers is that their wages have not risen. As you, much you over know, the years. Yeah. With, uh, with, and, and that's men and women. We've not seen wages uh, increase. And that's one of the biggest problems uh, uh, that we have today. Uh, and that's where it, it's more than a pay gap. It really is income inequality. And you're really and that, talking about over the, over the whole generation that wages right. have risen less than, than inflation. During the pandemic, they did rise, which I think people like you and me cheered that that right. was one positive aspect. And that was seen as a negative right. by Federal Reserve and right. our policy and others, because right. they yeah. believe that that's one driver of inflation. Mm -hmm. It makes me think about how do we monitor GDP, you know, uh, gross domestic product, how we factor in whether it's a good thing that wages are up. But, mm -hmm. but another question I had for you was prospects of passage. So is this, you said this is the fourth time you've introduced the bill? 
We've passed, uh, uh, yes, passed and we passed the house it four time. times in the House, uh, where it's run into difficulties in the Senate. We came very close several years ago when we were uh, two votes shy, and uh, but for that, uh, and there were, you know, two women members of the Senate who voted no, and uh, that would be the law of the land. So in any case, um, uh, it's going to be harder to do with the, uh, uh, Though, uh, you, you know, we now have, oh my God, well over, uh, you know, the close to the 218 uh, votes that you need to pass a bill, but we need to have several Republicans cross the aisle and, and be able to do this. And that, not sure that that's going to happen, but you, we're going to continue at it though. Well, Rosa, we this seems to be the theme of the every, every, every interview we do, which is that these big issues aren't always one-year fights. They're not one-offs, they're not one-shots. You, you keep raising an issue, raising a bill year after year, and sometimes you might go backwards for one year and then take two steps mm -hmm. forward the next. We talked about it with the earned income tax credit. We talked about mm -hmm. it with gun control measures. Do you see this, too, as something that happens over a long time if people who are leading the charge on it just continue to do the, the groundwork? The other example for me is the child tax credit. It's now almost 20 years, and it it, it Part of the president's budget this go around but it's going to be very difficult you know to to, to get to get passage but you you know you do you have to continue working at it and you have to continue to um uh, bring it up and you know the environment changes it's a different environment you know today than there was uh, you know 10 years ago and, and different people serve in the uh, in, in 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 the congress and I, I will tell you that but we need to think about um the paycheck fairness and equal pay for equal work. Uh, it, it's as uh, it, as part of a um, what I call a new social safety net, which includes paid sick days, paid family and medical leave, uh, uh, the uh, child care, bringing the cost of child care down, paying. Talk about wages, and it's mostly women uh, driven. Is that child care workers are 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 paid nothing? It's a pittance. You know, it's been a subject of rallies here, as you know, in New Haven and yeah. more from the state on that one. Exactly. You know, and you got wage theft prevention and the child tax credit. You know, this is, you know, my view of, you know, what is a new social safety net that we have to be uh, advocating and we have to continue to do it. You can't stop and you can't get tired. Well, you've never stopped. Well, and I know it's a little tougher this year than when it was you guys were in the majority just a few months ago and you were the head of the appropriations yeah. committee. Maybe that'll come back in two years. You're here. Two years. I, I promise to let you go. You're busy today. You're in town. You're going to do something in neighborhood housing services. The money right. you got for affordable housing. You're meeting with all the mayors in the area to talk I about am. Biden budget. And tomorrow you got a live interview on my favorite news outlet for political and government news in the country, Punchbowl. Uh-huh, that's right. And that'll be interesting. And the whole country will be hearing from Rosa DeLauro tomorrow, all the people who follow politics up close. So Rosa DeLauro, uh, representative of U.S. 3rd Congressional District since 1990. Right. It's a real honor to interview you every time, and thanks for making time for WNHHF from this morning. It's wonderful to be with you. Take care, and best to your family as well, Paul. Take Thank care. you, Rosa. Bye. Bye-bye. And you're listening to Love Babs, Love Talk on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. Tee up some music for us here. Babs Rolls Ivy is on vacation. She's at a writing workshop. Uh, she's getting some 
inspirations, he says. He's been posting pictures about how great the nature is. Uh, when she comes back, I think she's going to be revved up. We're going to do some local headlines and some national headlines. She's trying to uh, find us the Grits King song. There we go. That's Grits King. He's a local jazz musician who I think's done a really good job. And his new album is called um, Saving Time. And that's him playing in the background there with Saving Time. I thought I'd catch you up on some of the local and national headlines this morning. In New Haven, there's a showdown today on affordable housing coming up. There's a tent city. Homeless people have been living by the boulevard in the West River. It's been the subject of much debate in town because the city has struggled with this. They don't want to look like they're evicting people from land who say they have no place else to go and erecting tents. But they're worried about public safety. You know, people have these tents and they cook in them. You can have fires. It's public land. There are definitely public health concerns with people who... Excuse me? Are there public concerns with people who, who camp out there and whether they're going to get hurt? Those are soccer fields. Can the public use them? We had that issue with Occupy New Haven a decade ago on the Green, which started out as a protest against income inequality and became a serious public health hazard and ruining a public park and not letting the vast majority of the public use it. And on the other hand, of course, the hearts go out that people have no place to live and it's a complicated combination of factors that leads people to this tendency. Some people want to live outside. Some people can't afford an apartment. A lot of people who are homeless, not all people, a lot of people are, are wrestling with drug abuse. There's a lot of uh, and mental health problems. And again, there's a little bit of a chicken and the egg there, right? There's a tough economy when people can't afford a home. Do they have other kinds of problems that develop as a result? And do those problems fuel the loss of lack of a home? We have lots of programs in New Haven. There are shelters. Some people like to go to shelters. You heard yesterday morning with Nora Grace Flood was interviewing one of the 10 city people who's married. And she doesn't want to go to shelter because she wants to be with her husband. The other people said, I don't like the rules of the shelter. You got to be there a certain time, not do certain things. You know, it's not a lot of privacy either. We have uh, some great programs like on um, State Street where you where you have housing first programs for veterans and others who have substance abuse and you can still get in. You don't have to be clean to get in. It's the idea is you get the housing first so that you can deal with other challenges like getting um, help with with mental health, with uh, job training, jo- jobs. I think when we look at this issue, it's upsetting. And there'll be a showdown today because the city is closing it down. They say it's a health hazard, public health hazard. It is public property. The city's liable for that. We've seen places, other cities in the country where people have died and the cities are on the hook and morally responsible for death when they don't enforce codes. And on the other hand, you have people said, look, we did what you told us. They claimed that clean up the place. We want to live here. We need a place where outdoors are not bothering anyone. So at one o'clock, Norgay's flood will be there for the independent. There'll be other media there. People leave. I've been present at some smaller encampments, one in particular where they had people leave. And I remember they had spent days at the city working with each one there, trying to convince people to go get help, go to some other place where they could bring them to, to live, to get counseling, to get shelter. I think everybody cares around here. I don't think it's cold hearted. I don't think there are villains on either side. And I don't have magic answers for the affordable housing crisis. I think we're working on it. And obviously a lot of the decisions occur at levels beyond those we control. 
but it's going to be not a happy day when this showdown comes today. And I don't think it's a reason for finger pointing. That's one thing happening today. The other one was last night they made a new assistant chief of police. We have three now, Manit Cologne. And people are making a big deal about this one because it kind of is a big deal. First of all, it's the first woman back in a high rank. They want to get more women in policing. 17% of the New Haven police force is female. The chief, Carl Jacobson, said he hoped that in naming Manit Cologne, he named her because she was qualified, has done so much in the department, but he's also hoping to inspire more women to apply to become cops. Manit herself, she hails from India. She speaks Punjabi. She's a Sikh. And she said she hopes that inspires people from her background and similar backgrounds to also consider being police officers to be part of the system in America rather than just being dealt with by the system. I remember being at one case where she was in an apartment on the um, East Shore where I think it's Punjabi. I'm not sure. Someone spoke Punjabi. His family, a guy was shot who runs a convenience store. And Manit was the one in the room who could... She has a good manner, too, so it's not just that she speaks a language. She's, she cares about people, and I remember she was doing a lot to work with that family that day and keep people okay. Um, she's also got, like, good experience. She started working a beat in the cop in the hill. All the Haven officers started walking beat. She knows patrol well. She's been in charge of several neighborhood districts of policing. She oversaw the... Uh, and by the way, that was Grits King doing Saving Time. As we're here on WNHH-FM talking about the local headlines. So she ran the uh, Westville Policing District for a while. She ran Dixwell and mostly uh, New Hallville and East Rock, which for some reason is one district. She's also been a detective for many years. She was involved in robbery and burglary. She ran that unit. She was one of the first women to do that. She also did special crimes, and that's kind of a euphemism for when kids get raped, the saddest cases, um, and other kinds of domestic violence, family violence, and she did a lot of work on that. And I've seen her with kids. She's very good with kids. And uh, she's also run internal affairs, so she's known about fairly hearing the public's complaints, taking those complaints seriously, being fair to cops as well, focusing on the evidence, focusing on the rules, not making it personal. And she's respected. She, people feel she's done a good job on that. We're talking to say Mike Lawler, who's on the police commission and once a professor at University of New Haven, said, been very impressed. We heard from Samuel Ross Lee, who ran the civilian board, say the same thing. So I think this one's a win for New Haven, folks. And I think we got a really good newish team running the police department after a pretty sad chapter in the department, going back toward our old 70s and 80s style of beat-down policing. And I think we're going in the right, right direction. One of my favorite news stories you can read this morning, Independent by Maya McFadden, has to do with a watch party that took place Monday night. Some people want to have watch parties for the Oscars, for the Super Bowl. In New Haven, they had a watch party for the Board of Education meeting. Now you say, why don't people just go to the Board of Education meeting in person? Because people want to be together at a watch party in person to talk about education. Because for some reason, and we're not sure the real reason, for three years now since the pandemic started, the Board of Ed has been meeting only remotely. And that made a lot of sense at first. But then the schools came back in person. Other boards and commissions came back in person. 
And we learned in the pandemic, there are tools at hand so that if you have an in-person meeting, you could also put it on Zoom for people to watch at home. But they've kept the Board of Ed meetings online only. And people have been wondering why, because they say one of the most important parts of civic life and making decisions as a community is to see each other, to deal with business and watch people up close and ask them questions, but also talk to each other and talk to them when the official part is over seeing each other, hearing each other. Well, at first they gave this explanation to the Board of Ed for why their meetings were going to stay remote when the rest of the world was going back in person. They said, well, we have more democracy now because more people are attending, quote unquote, because they're signing up to watch it online. So basically they're watching TV instead of doing the non-spectator sport of democracy. But even if that were true, it's not either or, obviously, right? Because they're already bored all them all this been doing this forever, right? You can still have all those people who'd rather watch it at home, watch it at home. But if you're in person, you could do it both ways and still have a democracy where people can trust more and see more of the people making decisions for 20,000 public school students. So then it became obvious that they're hiding something. And again, if they're hiding something about this, which is not the most important issue, then it's hard to not believe they're hiding information that's important about why kids aren't reading or why they're having budget pressures, what they're going to do with it, or how they're going to pick the next superintendent of schools. So the, they, there were statements made that someone maybe had a health challenge, couldn't make it in person, and questions about whether certain people were living in New Haven while being on the board of the education, make decisions about the school where they're supposed to be living. They've been a little shady about that. They haven't come clean about who, what, where, and why if somebody physically can't make it to meeting, they can't be remote while the rest are there. So Monday night, the Federation of Teachers, which feels strongly about being in person and having a democratic process and accountability in decision-making in New Haven. They held a watch party at the headquarters and they had a great turnout. Dozens of people showed up. Darnell Goldson's a member of the Board of Ed. He believes they should be in person. So he came in person to the watch party while remotely participating in the actual Board of Ed meeting that everybody was watching alongside him at the Federation Teachers. A little bit of Woody Allen scene there, which Darnell Goldson's funny for injecting a little humor and irony into our public discussion. And the point was, if you read the article, you'll see it. The teachers and other people in public who came were talking about the schools. They were watching decisions being made. They are talking about what they could do about it. They could decide if they wanted to collaborate or at least know what each other is up to. And uh, credit goes to the Federated Teachers in a fun way. Exposing again the anti-democratic unaccountability unaccountable and bizarrely dishonest approach our Board of Education is taking to how they meet and where. And that's, you've been listening to Grits King, Saving Time, WNHHFM, and I'm Poes, I'm filling in today for Babs Rawls Ivy, who's usually here, love Babs, love talk every morning. She's our star host. She spent the week at a writing workshop, getting inspiration from words, from other writers, and from nature. That's what I've been getting from her social media and texts. So uh, there's other, other news happening today. We found out 
that they have new figures on how much of the property is tax exempt in New Haven. How, how, many, how many other? So that's always a big issue in New Haven, right? Because we have big nonprofits. Yale's the biggest, but it's not just Yale. But of course, Yale's the biggest property owner. And because we have so much tax exempt property, we can't tax it. So the rest of us who either own or rent houses, have businesses pay the gap, which has always made our taxes higher than people in wealthier communities. We get more money now reimbursed from the state for those tax exemptions, but it's still a big deal. Well, the headline in The Independent was that 55.53% of our real estate is tax exempt. Well, that's a lot. You know, I don't know if you see anybody else that much in Connecticut, at least in the larger cities. But actually, I think it's, to me, I said, oh, it's not as much as it was. Because two years ago, we were 60%. And that had been growing, growing, growing up to 60%. When we heard that, that was a shaker. Then we reass- reassessed our property. And we discovered that so much, that still there was a growth in how much nonprofit owned property, tax and property there is in town. But there was more growth in tax, taxable property. We've been having this building boom, market rate apartments for the most part, some offices too, tech towers, 100 college, 101 college. There's going to be another one now in the 10th square, as they call it, at the old Coliseum site. And I'm hearing rumors there'll be yet another one right by those two College Street Towers at the old College Plaza. And the housing, as you know, is all over the place, <clears throat> especially downtown, Worcester Square, East Rock, but all over the place, Dixwell. And it's continuing. So that's a good thing, right? Theoretically. Because theoretically, the more property we have that we can tax, the more money we have for our schools, for our police, or to make taxes not so high on everybody else. The problem always is Time always lies in trying to convert that new taxable property into actual tax revenue to actually have us benefit from the growth in our city rather than have the investors from out of town who are benefiting by making profits on their investments. That's why they're investing here in the first place to get these high rents, $3,000 for a park for every month. But then theoretically, <clears throat> we promote this stuff because it grows our grand list as we see and then we get more taxes the problem is that we discovered this new number showing 55% around the 60% of tax uh, of nonprofit tax exempt property by doing a reassessment of our, all our property but then when we came time to change the taxes we gave a break originally it was going to be five years City Hall wanted and the Alders after an expose by Tom Breen showing who's benefiting, made it two years. But still, we were waiting another two years to get the benefits of more taxes from all that property. So we were basically sending a lot of money in the form of non-charged taxes to people who own luxury apartment buildings and are from out of state, and people who are buying up poverty housing, getting Section 8 rents, federal subsidized rents, to make big profits and send them out of state. On top of that, while we saw that the value grew, it could have grown a lot more if we used a different method for deciding what buildings are worth. When we decide what a house is worth, we use a pretty obvious way of looking at that in New Haven. What are houses selling for? If you have a house across the street from the same kind of house, 
that house sold for $200,000, then your house is basically $200,000 looking at other factors like is it basically the same kind of house. That seems like common sense, right? Something's worth what people pay for it. So if properties are going up, values are going up in your neighborhood, you're going to be taxable for your house. I don't feel sorry for you that because if you want to sell your house, you're going to make more money. If you want to borrow money, you can. But we use a different method for commercial buildings. This is complicated method. It takes all those factors. The state says you got to look at other factors, but we make a decision how to balance those factors. And we do some income approach of how much you can expect every year and speculative approaches that aren't based on what people are actually paying for these buildings. So guess what? When it comes to every single case that we look at, Tom Breen's done a lot of stories in this independent, every single case we look at, we say that these buildings owned by wealthy out-of-state investors are worth a lot less than they actually sell for. I'll just give you two examples of what I'm talking about. You know, 360 State, 360 State, that's the largest apartment tower in New Haven. It sold for $160 million. Right around the same time, the city said it was worth only $115 million. Got that? $160 versus $115. So the city said that property is worth $45 million less than people would actually pay for it. So when we tax them, we're not taxing that $45 million worth of that property's value. It doesn't disappear into thin air. It means the house that you live in, whether you own it or rent it, is going to pay more taxes to pay up that, to make up that gap. Or it means that instead of lowering our high tax rate compared to other towns and cities, it's going to have to stay higher. It's another level on which this contributes to the challenge of how in New Haven we are not harnessing the true benefits of all this growth, of this gold rush, of all these investors coming from out of state to make a big, quick buck on luxury housing, poverty housing. Not only do we not fully appraise the value of those properties so we can tax them right, not only did we phase in couple of years from having to pay the new tax rate when we looked at what it's worth. But by state law, five years when they build something new, they don't have to pay the full value of those taxes. That one at least makes sense. The idea is that if you have a vacant piece of land or something that's not worth much, someone comes in and spends a lot of money to make it worth more. It takes a while before they can collect the tax revenue on, or the rents on that or whatever they're going to make money on if it's manufacturing. And it's worth it to have it be a little incentive too so that we get more people to build it up so that over long term we can get more taxes from them and build up our tax base. But if we never get around after that five years to taxing, that property starts to depreciate. They go to court using comparable sales sometimes, I've seen, or comparable assessments to get their values lowered. So first we wait five, up to five years when someone builds something new in New Haven to make a quick buck. Then, because of decisions we make, we still say it's worth less than it's really worth now to tax them. And then we add a couple of years to when their new value is going to take effect and have the rest of us pay that freight. By that time, it's a question of whether this now seven-year-old or more building is worth what it was when we could have cashed in. 
I think we lost an opportunity, folks. And uh, we're going to take a, a song break and then come back for more discussion. Kristen Ford and the Blue Jeans. Song about America. Came into this world with nothing at all. Nothing from my ma and pa. The way the poppy feels to grow. Like my love of rock and roll. I got that blue magic. I'm the only one who has it. You want that on nothing else. Started from the bottom, now I'm here. Used to be blurry, I brought my vision, now I'm clear. Run the pipeline from the prison to the school. Only here for the gold, so you better run the jewels. How you build the empire when you never had the tools? Could have shortchanged the game, but instead I paid dues. All I ever did know was that I'm feeling that blow. And my mama ain't pro just to save my soul. So I'm dressed in black, ready for a check. But you want that night hard when he stepped back. Never been concerned about the shoes on my feet. Always had soul, cause I grew from the concrete. Better step aside when you see me come through. Cause I'm the definition of an elder dream. Just a girl from the third class with a slight wrong Never take less than Cause I gotta have it all Just the strings on my guitar Put my life inside a car Headed to the next step or. I don't stress, I got the blue magic I'm the only Black girl, what call that blue magic? They say this wasn't meant to be. Now we got a mild man making history. My goals and dreams were above the clouds. Now I float on stage when I move the crowd. So just keep calm and we'll overcome. I'm down three one, but I'm falling like a bronze. Yeah, we run against the gray. Yeah, we ride in our own lane. Got them eating out our hands. Run this town, we run this land. Wasn't supposed to get this far. Now we know how. That's Kristen Ford, MC Genesis Blue. Kristen Ford was a, a fixture of the New Haven scene before hitting a little bigger. And they, uh, she does a kind of punk folk thing. And she teamed up with MC Genesis Blue for some really, really great music. I'm going to play one more of their tracks called America. Then we're going to come back with national headlines this morning, including new worries in the stock market. Down in our month. 
the shine, all the diamonds in the rough. I think it's time to take a stand. Enough is enough. Call they bluff, cause I don't think you really understand. If we come together, we don't have to blame the man. Don't need no 40 acres, just give me the whole land. Diversion is created just to see you from the plan. Goddamn, I'm just trying to spit the knowledge. Take notes. How you sink a ship when you're in the same boat? Try to hit a stroke, but we can't stay afloat. Something's out of order, but they swear it ain't broke. That's a joke, cause we ain't even got the same rights. And even if I get it, gotta put up a fight. And I ain't really saying that I got the answer key. Cause really all I want is for my people to be free, to be free. The beat of my heart is crying L-O-V-E. Cause I want all of my people to be free, to be free. The beat of my heart is crying L-O-V-E. Cause I want all of my people to be free, to be free. America, checking for your hoes. 49 beats, they profit But none of us were here until they took it from the natives. Then we turned around and had a nerd to be racist. Justify the use of religious discrimination. Had a terror goddess in the palm of their hand. But we can't get together to create a counter plan. Violence, silence, rising riots. Innocent, dying, government lying. Can't get ahead cause we all too consumed. With who I sleep with and where I use the restroom. I'm just trying to tell you that I got the antidote. Campaign for love, let peace win the vote. Feel like giving up, but I still got hope. Respecting every person, that will really be dope. You can send with love, all far from the hate. Let's adopt one label for ourselves, human race. Oh, yes, we should pray for Orlando. Like we pray for Sandy Hooks and Bernardino. We'll stop going to the movies and stop going to the club. Kindergartner should be carrying the gun. Stonewall was a riot after prayers were not enough. So won't you stand up? Won't you stand up? America, checking for your post. The beat of my heart is crying L-O-B-E. Cause I want all of my people to be free, to be free. The beat of my heart is crying L-O-B-E. Cause I want all of my people to be free, to be free. Now what we want, peace. And who is us, we? So just let us be and live in harmony. Now what we want, peace. And who is us, we? So just let us be and live in harmony. Who is us, we? Says the Blue Jays. That's New Haven's familiar Kristen Ford and MC Genesis Blue. As the Blue Jays do in America here on Love Babs Love Talk, WNHH FM, New Haven's home for community radio. This is Paul Bass filling in for the great Babs Rawls Ivy, who's off this week doing your morning. So, as we hear from Grits King again in the background, we talked about some national news. There's a number this morning that if you feel, you know, every day we have to freak out about something, right? We have to figure out, and often that's part of a problem modern today. The news cycle with with the algorithms of such news organizations, they have to try to get us to freak out all the time. But sometimes something is going on. We got to figure out whether to freak out or not. 
and it can have real consequences. It can cause other bad things to happen that might have happened if we hadn't freaked out. Now, you might have guessed them talking about what's been happening with the banks, right? Friday and Sunday, within two day, three days, two banks failed in America. One was the second biggest bank failure ever in our history, Sovereign Bank in California. I'm sorry, not Sovereign Bank, Silicon Valley Bank, but Sovereign Bank in New York. Now, in each case, it was important, and they did the right thing. You heard it on, on this show on Monday with George Perez, the state bank commissioner. You had Joe Biden going out Monday saying, don't panic. These are isolated cases. Depositors will be made whole, even if they had deposits that were beyond those insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. They wanted people not to panic because there wasn't neat reason to panic that thinks banks would need to have a run on them and start failing, unless everybody thought they would. That's how panics start, right? Now, often there are real reasons behind it. The 2008 crash had to do with all these subprime loans that were just generating fees for people writing them, but they really weren't worth anything, so the bill comes due, right? So there are some factors that make always at any time, like now post-pandemic and the war in Ukraine, that make and high interest rates that challenge the economy. That always happens. We've built learning from past disasters, safeguards in place like the FDIC insurance to try to prevent this. But now people are worried about that panic. So Monday, they spent all day saying, don't panic. Meanwhile, on Monday, people were mildly panicked. And what they were focusing on were the regional banks. So the big banks were doing okay, said we're not going to fail. The smallest banks mostly were not failing, but there were some cases where the banks um, might have a particular reason, right? Like Sovereign Bank, which was heavy into crypto exchanges. But they were worried about the medium-sized banks, like in New Haven, regional banks. They're based elsewhere, but they're pretty big, and their big presence is in New Haven. I'm thinking a key bank, right? That was once New Haven Savings Bank. It was a mutual bank. Got bought a whole bunch of times. Now it's owned by the Hell Bank. Key. And if they failed, obviously that'd be a huge deal. So they were one of the three banks nationally that regulators were watching on Monday saying, look at their price plummet. People worried that they had their own problems that were different from Silicon Valley Bank and Southern. And the share price, a quarter of the whole value of Key Corporation, the parent of Key Bank, they lost that quarter of their value on stock trading on Monday. So people were freaked out. Then everyone exhaled on Tuesday because that's that whole cycle that with the algorithms and the organization, are they going to make news organizations? They're going to make us freak out about everything that happens in the economy. So everyone breathed a sigh of relief on Tuesday. The bank's shares recovered at key. They, they got, I think, 14% back of their value. And everyone says, we're not going to have these runs in the banks. Don't worry about it. And, you know, people like our business who had deposit these places thinking, do we need to move them? Well, this morning, there's been new panic. Key Bank lost all their value again. The number I'm looking at now is as of, um, as of a few minutes ago. Key Bank has lost another 8% of its value, went down, uh, the share went down another dollar, and it lost all that value it regained the day before. And why? Because there are the contagions in the financial markets. Credit Suisse, a bank in Europe, which also does a lot of business here, you'll see they do the mortgages and a lot of the sales in New Haven, they lost 20% of their value at the opening. And again, their problems aren't the same as Silicon Valley Bank, not the same as Sovereign Bank. It's not crypto, it's not using a lot of money in startup and, and investing them in the wrong way in U.S. treasuries that didn't work out well with rising interest rates, right? There are always specific reasons in each case. But now there are concerns about the stability of that bank because of a history of mistakes they made. And all the European banks are having a problem this morning that contains the spending. So what I'm saying is that I agree with regulators like George Perez. I agree with President Biden that overreacting is a mistake. We have a lot of safeguards built into the system. But 
This morning's news makes us reason to be a little nervous about the financial system. We don't want to have a repeat of 2008. History doesn't repeat itself the same ways, right? 2008's crash from subprime mortgages was not the same reason as the 1929 collapse on Wall Street. The reasons are a little different now because of the brew of factors with the rising interest rates in the war in Ukraine and when we have supply uh, chains, but also the uh, decisions by individual banks how to protect their assets. But we're keeping an eye on that. And one of the things that people are, and I'm glad we're not freaking out about, but it's kind of curious. You know how sometimes there's a story that's lower down on the list of, of stories being covered, but your eyes pop out and say, ooh, is that a big deal or not? Did you happen to notice that um, for the first time ever, a, a, a U.S. drone was shot down by a Russian warplane over the Black Sea? I mean, that seems like the kind of thing that can cause a lot of trouble, too, looking at history, what kind of incidents, because everyone's been worried about whether the war in Ukraine is going to metastasize into a bigger conflict. And um, and this is the kind of thing people worry about. And um, it, it was not in Russian airspace, but it's international waters. Russia said they were heading for American airspace in Crimea, which, of course, is the most sensitive spot there because the Russia took over Crimea, and it's an essential staging point for them if they want to get more territory in Ukraine. So it's not funny about that. What was interesting to me is that, of course, the U.S. objected. Russia said we didn't do anything wrong. They even denied shooting down the drone at one point. But leaders on both sides are trying to downplay how important it is while not ignoring it. And that's one reason I've been feeling confident about the Biden administration. I think that given the president and his team's experience in foreign policy, they don't want to overreact and make get World War III as the way Biden was cautiously operating in Ukraine while still taking a long strain stand. So that's the news not to panic about today, even though it pushes our panic buttons. We're going to take a little break, uh, listen to a little music. We're going to, I'm Paul Bass filling in for Babs Rolls Ivy. I love Babs, love talk. We're going to listen to a little more Kristen Ford, a few other local artists, and we'll be back at the 10 o'clock hour with Mayor Justin Elliker, who's running for a third term. And he's up to a lot these days, everything from neighborhood rec centers to um, a crisis team on the streets to replace police and dealing people with mental health challenges. We're going to talk about all that and more at 10, so stay tuned to WNHH New Haven's home for community radio at 103.5.
And you are listening. W N H H H L L P one one O O three point five five F F M New Haven New Haven Streaming Streaming Live Live Welcome back to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines and the stories that make our community tick. Justin Elliker makes our community tick. He's the mayor. He's in his third term, right? And you're running for a fourth. No. No. I'm I'm running for my third. You're running for third. I'm sorry, Justin. Justin's in his second two-year term. It's like an eternity. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a lot of years given the pandemic. Yeah. And Justin's running for third term. He's come on Dateline to talk about why he's running again, what it's been like being mayor, how his thinking has evolved about the issues we wrestle with every day in New Haven. And we were talking before we got on the air that we should really start out with the big news in New Haven because that leads into it. Tenth City on the boulevard. Homeless people have been camping there for a while. The city found some health public health violations they worked with the people who were living there and now they've given an eviction order at one o'clock today there's prediction that there might be some resistance so justin what's going on on the boulevard uh, so and i i think that you're right you you had um alluded to talking about some things that i've learned over the past three years as mayor and i think this is a really good example to talk about that in, in this context but uh the this is a tough this is a really tough issue and uh, I think it's challenging because we in New Haven uh, try to do everything we possibly can to help the most vulnerable. And I think we've had a long history of that way before my time. Uh, and the, the folks that are unhoused in New Haven are uh, some of the most vulnerable in our community. The encampment uh, that, uh, on the West River that uh, there's been a lot of attention about recently uh, has has been there for quite some time. You know, over the years it's been kind of on and off of how many people have stayed there. but Throughout the pandemic, um, uh, the encampment was there. And this is different from Marginal Drive, correct? Which is right on the other it's, side of the river? Correct, correct. It's next to the, uh, the soccer fields there yeah. on Alagrasa Boulevard. Um, and the, you know, we've, we've generally taken a very hands-off approach with the exception of our outreach workers in partnership with other nonprofits that work in this space regularly go out, check on people, uh, offer resources, offer support, and that's everything from mental health support to, you know, clearly um, support identifying potential housing to, you know, even a clean pair of socks. The, the, so our outreachers have, have been very, very engaged over years and years. Um, but recently uh, there was a, a, you know, about, I don't know, three weeks ago, they started to build a, a, a permanent structure there, a shower. It's right next to the West River. Um, there are propane tanks on site, uh, some heaters within the tents, which the tents are highly flammable, human waste on site, a lot of trash. And so we, uh, we gave the, uh, the folks that are there a notice saying they needed to address these issues um, uh, because they're health and safety issues and we need to keep people safe. And if they didn't address the issues, we'd have to remove the encampment. 
and uh, that was maybe two and a half weeks ago. Uh, last week, uh, they they had they had made some real progress there, and we were under the impression that they had addressed most of the issues. But then we saw additional violations next last week, and gave them a notice that we. What kind of violations did you see? Uh, propane tank, human waste. Uh, uh, they they started to build this another permanent structure. Um, and other heating, open burn, evidence of open burns. The fire marshal went out and checked the site as well. Uh, a lot of and trash And the fire marshal site. thought there was a danger of a fire. Correct, correct. Um, and a da- danger to people, right? Uh, especially with, you know, those te- the tents in, in general are very, very flammable. And so um, every person that uh, has been staying there has an option to go to Columbus House and have a bed at Columbus House. Uh, and our outreach workers have been work- working very hard to try to support people that are there. But again, it's a tough issue. And just you know, to, to talk about kind of bigger picture here, um, a, you know, a lot of people put a lot of pressure on the city to do more, and and that's very rightfully so. There's always more that we can be doing, and uh, we care deeply about this issue. Uh, we we're not an island, and we can't do this alone. And you think about every surrounding town does not have a homeless shelter, um, but we have multiple homeless shelters in our city, uh, and this is a, an affordable housing issue as well. When you, you really dial back or kind of uh, uh, think big, bigger picture about this issue. This is about affordable housing. New Haven is working very, very hard to expand our affordable housing. I'm happy to talk about all the things that we've been doing and will continue to do. We've seen active resistance by surrounding towns to do any sort of development in many cases. And, you know, we can't do these things alone. Uh, we've got to see movement and support from our, our surrounding towns. So, Justin, your point's well taken that affordable housing has a lot to do with the homeless crisis. New Haven gets a lot of problems to deal with regionally. I, I know you spoke to the people at the Tentman, right? Has, is there anyone who's from New Haven? Not that this means they shouldn't have a place to live, but is anyone from New Haven that you've met? Uh, so I've met several people there. Uh, the ones that I have met are not from New Haven. Because I don't think we've interviewed but, anyone. You know, I, that's okay. There's still people yeah, in there I, in I our have... city. And, you know, your points are well taken that the city can do everything in its power to try to create more affordable housing, have emergency shelter. If the suburbs aren't doing their job you and others in the city have been you know trying to change those state laws there's still so that's the case that there are a bunch of people who don't want to go to shelters and there are people who, for whatever reasons in their lives are high and says not everybody have mental health problems drug abuse problems i don't know if those are caused by them not having housing or if that caused them not housing or it's interrelated and it's a really tough one for you guys so i remember i went to when you guys dismantled a, a smaller encampment it was, uh, might have been before you, Mayor, on, on, in East Rock, Cedar Hill. Mm-hmm. And there was an additional reason there was that they had tents and they propane in them. If there was a fire there, those were woods and there were houses backing up. A lot of people could have gotten hurt. So I wanted to tease a couple of the issues you raised. If they, there's first of all a threat to their health. So you have to think about that, right? It's a city park. And are you personally responsible? Is this, I mean, is the state, is city responsible if they hurt themselves really badly through a fire on a city Potent- property? Potentially. So you have liability for that. Mm-hmm. And moral liability, like I think about the ghost ship in Oakland. Do you remember that? We had closed down Daggett Street, which was like the ghost ship right before that. And people were upset saying, you know, artists should have a place to live. But we were saying you couldn't get out. There was a fire. Mm-hmm. And then the artist place in Oakland, all those people died. And they said, where were the inspectors? What about that? Do you feel a moral responsibility for the safety of the people who are camping on public land? Yeah, I mean, there's a moral responsibility for people's safety. And there's also a moral responsibility to help people find another option right because and what if they what, don't want it well i mean that's so we have been hands off on uh every encampment that um 
uh, doesn't uh, have health and safety issues. Uh, we've been we've been generally hands off, uh, and so I think it, when there is a risk to human life, to human health and safety, we start to intervene, uh, and that's and I think that's rightfully so. What about public right to use a park? Like whose park is it? It's a, it's everyone's park. Right? So is it so, everyone's park when there's an encampment there? Yeah, I think different people would would have different opinions on that. Right, different people would have different opinions. Um, with the West, West River site, uh, that site's been there for uh, years and years. You know, th- 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 pretty much throughout my administration. Does it stop soccer and we, games? We no, and we've had some complaints, but you know, I felt like it was important for us to say, look, you know, we're, this is a challenging issue, and we're struggling with this issue. Um, it, and by and large, over the years, the people that have been living there have not di- disrupted other uh, things and they've been uh, they've been relatively safe. Because I try to put myself in your position when I cover a politician. I was thinking, boy, I'd hate to be in that position because you do care about people. You don't want to kick out people for whatever reasons that their lives are kind of messed up. You want them to be able to stay outside if they want to stay outside and as long as they're not hurting anybody. But you also have public land you're responsible for. You have other people want to use the land. That's a tough one. So how do you go about today dismantling it? Uh, so we on Friday uh, posted a notice that um, people have 72 hours to remove their materials. And by the way, other entities don't don't give that kind of timeline. You know, the state will just remove uh, things without trying to work with people to give them uh, time to help support. Our outreach workers have been there. They will continue to be there today. Um, but our expectation is that people move out. I, I also think, like, look, I, I think it's also important to underscore just how much work the city of New Haven does on... Uh, on housing and homelessness. We put $1.4 million of our general fund budget into the unhoused. And that's not staff. That is direct services, mostly to nonprofits that we partner partner with, warming centers. Uh, there's been seven drop-in centers during the day that have been opened up recently that offer a shower. They offer opportunity for someone to clean their clothes and uh, additional services. We put, we put more than any other municipality in the state into direct services. It's interesting how people come to New Haven who don't, because I'm talking now, and you do, there's a subset of people who don't want to go to those services and they want to be outside. And it's interesting how they come from other parts. And again, I'm not criticizing them for that. I'm just wondering how that then becomes your problem. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's not an indication that we should be doing less. It's an indication that others should be doing more. Does it look different to you from before you were sitting in the mayor's office? Does Uh, this issue look different to you? Have you thinking about what, the city should be doing, can be doing about it evolved. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you, when you look at, and there's so many issues like this, when you look at things by, uh, on the outside, just reading the press and, um, and watching what's going on in social media, uh, the, you're not seeing the full picture. Or if you meet challenge. someone like you went and talk, when you meet the people care, right? We had an interview with someone who really cared about the woman who was from Wallingford in Georgia and sure. she doesn't want to go in. I hope she has someplace to stay. Right. Um, so I, I think, you know, as far as the things that, when you think bigger picture, uh, some of the things that I have learned is these co- these problems are much more complex typically than anyone would realize. And you, you read the news and you say, oh, I would do this. Well, there's a lot of challenges to it. Did you do any of, of that when you ran for I mayor? I sure did. I sure did. <laughs> that was a rhetorical I question. I sure did. And I would do that too um, if I ran for office. Yeah. And it's, and you know, it, it came <laughs> from, a, it came from a good place, you know, similar to the other candidates that are running now, I think it comes from a good place. You really believe that you could do things differently and you believe that, um, uh, you could solve a lot of problems that are actually much more complex to address than you might think. So I, I think that's, that's one thing that 
I'm reminded of over and over and over again is whenever I think something's easy, I'll start to dig into it and talk to our staff and talk to other folks. And all of a sudden there's all these other issues. And then the <laughs> challenge for a mayor, right? Or a governor is not to throw up your hands when you reach exactly. that point and say, I still have to believe I can move the needle. Exactly. I still have to believe that I can change the paradigm. I can't change everything. I can't change Washington. I can't change Hartford. I can influence Hartford, but I got to, I could still work with everybody and try to figure out something. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of uh, barriers to that. You know, people that have been working in City Hall for a really long time say, well, we tried that a while ago, it didn't work. Well, and you got you got to push people to say, well, you tried that, but have you tried this? And have you tried this way around the around the challenge? Uh, well, maybe we need to see if we can cha- change the state law and work with our uh, state delegation to uh, to push this, changing the state law, and that will give us the ability to you know, for example, uh, address noise and quality of life issues in the city like dirt bikes and, and um, these uh, speakers that uh, have been plaguing the city with loud noise. Um, you can't just stop it. There's nothing we can do. You got to find all kinds of creative solutions and push the team to do that. Um, but that, ta- that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of work. And we're talking about that work on Dateline New Haven and WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio, 103.5 FM. We're talking to Mayor Justin Alec, who's running for third term despite how many years each year has felt like since the pandemic started. And we're talking about how his thinking has evolved about what it means to be a mayor and how you do your job and address these issues. So overall, when you think about how you viewed the mayor's office before you came in and how you view it today, has your thinking evolved about what the job entails beyond the fact that these issues are more complicated than people realized? Uh, they take a lot longer, too, and that's ties to the complexity. And you have a two-year cycle. So you run for mayor every two years, but if you're trying to change the state law on dirt bikes or you know bike lanes that we did, or you're not trying to about bail, it doesn't even take effect if you get it passed until you're running for re-election the next time. Right. And you know, and frankly, a lot of the things, particularly in the first two years, that um, we were celebrating were because of the work of the the previous mayor, of Mayor Harp. Uh, you know, the opening of the Q House. She uh, she put in the bulk of the work to get that across the finish line, and um, and I think that's. The, ni- the nice thing in New Haven is overwhelmingly people believe in the, um, in the type of government that we should have and the values that we have in the direction we should There is consensus. Yeah. Like um, so great, for the never, most part, never, not 100%. Never, never 100% agreement on things. But that, you know, you want to have affo- more affordable housing. They want to have immigration-friendly community policing, Correct. however we define that. Yeah. Correct. Um, and, and we often argue about the kind of details about how far to push things we argue like a lot that. on that yeah. but but the nice thing about that is that you know if there is a, a change in administration ever uh, you're not likely to see things uprooted and all of a sudden everything's changed right um I, I the the other thing that i have have realized is that time is that our, our capacity limitations fi- financial is a big issue and i always knew that but time is such a big challenge for us like our staff including me, but uh, across the board are just overwhelmed with the amount of work. And how do you make that sustainable when they have that much work? Well, uh, can they really work? I mean, police are working 80 no, hours so, a week. So that's not sustainable. Correct. So, so, and, and you name the department, they're overwhelmed. And it's because over the years we have reduced the number of people working in the departments. Uh, frankly, over the years, uh, our pay has not kept up in many categories with our partners in other towns or our, our uh, um, uh, the the other uh, municipalities that will attract other employees and um, and it's about priorities too and and saying no to certain things and um, and and putting other things at the top of the list but the expectation by by and large by the public is we do everything and 
you know, each individual may say, well, that's, that issue is not important, but tree trimming is important or the parks are important or someone might say that issue is not important, but, but public safety is important. But by and large, people want to see delivery of all these services and we just have a lot of challenges. How do you manage that as a mayor? So we're in a, an environment now where everyone's always upset about something and it gets magnified more quickly because social media feels like the biggest thing in the world. So if you, if you, if you get through this thing with Tent City, tomorrow it'll be about taxes or it'll be about policing. How do you make that sustainable? How do you manage a city responding to what people are concerned about at the moment and maintaining a big picture so you can strategically deal with a lot of problems? Yeah, so I, I think with honesty and directness, and, and I, you know, I, I say that r- really meaning it. You know, I have found that, and I, th- I think that maybe other political leaders don't always find this, but I, I've found that if you are really direct and out front on an issue, for example, our budget challenges, or our salary challenges or issues around attracting the best talent because we have a residency requirement makes it much more challenging. If we're really direct and open about these issues and say, this is our challenge and this is how I believe we can solve it, people actually are open to, open to that and understand it. And you know, taking the residency requirements. So we haven't had a controller for two and a half years. Uh, and there's two reasons for that. One is our pay has been too low for that position. And the second is that we have a residency requirement and there's people that may have young kids that are going into school and they live in a suburban town that are not willing to uproot and move to New Haven. It makes us much, much less competitive. I found that instead of saying, well, that's politically too sticky of an issue, if we're super open about it, by and large, people are responsive to it and understand it. Um, but then you got to figure out how to make that happen. So now we have charter revision. Exactly. And are we going to make the same mistake we made three out of the last four charter reviews revisions where we put all the changes in one question nobody reads, hoping it'll all pass, including the stuff they might not want, and then the people who don't want stuff are the ones who care about it and kill it. So ultimately a question for the Charter Revision Commission and the others. But but I think it is important. There's a good opportunity to kind of go over the charter process just so people understand it. So Once every 10 years, we look at our constitution, which is the charter, and we have a chance to amend it and make changes. And the alders have created a commission that's reviewing a bunch of questions that they outlined. The commission will provide a recommendation to the alders, and the alders will reject or approve that recommendation. If they approve it, it goes on the ballot for people to vote on. And there's been a couple of... uh, I believe really important items that we're exploring right now. One is eliminating residency requirements for some department heads so that we can be more competitive. Another that I think is quite important is four-year terms for the mayor and alders. Now why alder? Regardless of who's the mayor, I think it's important that we have some continuity over the Well, it's not really immediately about you either because even if it passes, the next election will be in two years. But I don't get why we're going for four-year alders. I mean, look at any system, president and Congress, state governor and and, and um and state rep and, and senators it seems so important that the people like the idea we're trying to convince people is that they don't need to make vote for the mayor every four years because they need time as an executive with the staff to put plans into place and not just run again for re-election before anything happens so it seems like at all levels we've seen the legislators as the ones who then allow the voters to have an injection of closer democracy in smaller districts every two years. Why, why would we want four year old? Yeah. I mean, I can see both sides of the argument. Uh, I think that elections cost money, uh, just like logistically they cost money for the city to run. Is that really the driver? How much do, well, no, not it's, it's some, it's not a huge amount, but you know, I I think, uh, the, the alders, uh, similar to the mayor have to make really difficult decisions sometimes and it helps for governance to have more stability across the years. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that, 
uh, two-year terms versus four-year terms necessarily going to change a lot for the alders and accountability. They mostly don't the get alders, challenged anyway. Yeah, they, they don't get challenged, and they, uh, by and large, work their tails off. Uh, and don't you want that but, feedback, if it's not your year running, to hear what's happening at the grassroots and have people think, be able to weigh in? I think people are pretty comfortable giving me their feedback, <laughs> whether this election or not. <laughs> and that's Mayor Justin Elker here on Dateline New Haven running for a third two-year term. How about on education? So that's emerged as a big issue. And uh, there were a couple of big issues with education. Has your thinking evolved on that at all and how we should be running schools in New Haven? Uh, yeah, in a couple of ways. Um, I think that uh, uh, the some people think the mayor has total control over New Haven public schools. And uh, I, I can just pull a lever and all the board members vote a certain way. And it's just not, not the case. I've I've appointed people to the board that are independent thinkers that uh, work very, very hard and are committed to our kids. And you are a board and, member. And, and I am now, a board member. And you have appointed a majority now. You don't have a lever. Correct. But unlike correct. in your first year when you, I think, would have preferred the schools to reopen earlier, you didn't have a majority to do that. That might not be a correct assessment. That was how it looked to me. Yeah. But now you have a majority and it's on you, that, even though you a, don't pull a lever. But the opening of the school is a perfect example where four of the board members felt um, that it wasn't the right time to ha go back to schools in person, right? They, they wanted to continue uh, remote uh, learning. But now you have four and even though they don't pull a lever, you are responsible of having appointed them. C correct. Those correct. of us who don't agree that we need more elected board of ed members say part of the reason is that we elect a mayor who then can have a vision who doesn't control the board member you want to get someone who's smart and independent but right. i would but say it's that there's, still it's part there's of examples your record. of <laughs> there's examples of how i don't control the board members that i've appointed but it's still your but record I, but you appointed them right, right but i'm not arguing with that i'm i'm arguing against the point of oh the mayor appoints people so the mayor has total control over yeah. people that's not the case and the frankly some of the people i've appointed uh, would not, in my view, uh, be willing to run for uh, these positions. We've seen in the past 10 years since we've had two elected members virtually no contested elections I for know. these two positions. I know why people think two you know, there's more. An ar there's an argument uh, that I've heard now that, oh, if there were smaller districts, more people would run. I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really buy that argument. Um, That's also a representative democracy or just a pure democracy on every question. But the question is, do you, do you feel that the decisions we made on reading that were controversial, we were the last city to kind of agree that balanced literacy wasn't working, that we needed phonics, and we were the holdouts. So yeah, that, I th that was I, your majority. I think it took, well, so it's not just up to the Board of Education to do that, right? It's not just up to the Board of Education, it's also up to the superintendent and her, and her team. And I think one of the things that a lot of people uh, kind of watching may, may feel is, oh, the Board of Education just says, superintendent, do this, and then superintendent does it. but you know, in, in reality, we need to be partners in this work, uh, and all of us need to feel some buy-in for this work. Uh, and I, I agree that New Haven was slow to, uh, to accept it, but we're, uh, we've, we're diving in, we're, we're evaluating the two different, um, we're evaluating two different pilot curriculum, and we'll be deciding. And they're both uh, structural literacy. Yeah, they're both structure literacy, the science of reading. Um, so it took us a little bit longer to get there, um, but, you know, we're fully there. And what about, and, and, what about the in-person board meetings? That's been controversial. Why, you know, they had that watch party at the right. Federal well, A lot of us are having a hard time understanding I don't, why I don't, they're not in person. Because, you know, the reason you gave was that more people watch. But you can watch and have it in person, too. I think we should be going hybrid. And I, I, don't, I don't see what the delay is. But I know that and uh, the president of the board, Yusinia Rivera, said that they're working on setting up that system to do so. But I think it makes sense to go hybrid. I don't, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't.
Pivoting back to taxation. So when you ran for mayor, we talked about how when you run for mayor, you're not in the seat. So I remember you saying, I remember this one Westfield debate when they asked about high taxes. You said, if we got more reimbursement pilot from Yale, our taxes wouldn't have to be so high. And that's all it's about. It's obviously not all it's about, although I might have agreed with you that night at the debate. I definitely did not say that's all it's about. Okay, but it was all you answered. And they said that's how you're going to address it. Let's go check my quote because I've been very cautious about making comments about taxes over the years. But but either way, what did it surprise you? You actually had this wild success for the first time in our lifetimes. We got we doubled our pilot reimbursement. Got another fifty million dollars a year from the state for a tax and property. We got ten million more from Yale a year, and we still. And I thought you were responsible and honest in how you presented your budget. You still raised taxes somewhat. Yep. So that didn't do the trick. Did it turn out that finances are in worse condition than you knew before you were mayor, or did you find out that there are other kinds of decisions you need to make that are worth raising taxes? Yeah, for? I mean it's a combination. It's a combination. So. You know, first of all, when you look at our financial system situation today compared to three years ago, we are things are remarkably different. Um, thanks to leadership of Marty Looney and our state delegation moving Pandemic our pilot payments yeah. from $41 million annually to 90 and to Unite Here and a lot of other folks for pu- pushing Yale to do more, moving their contribution annually from 13 to $23 million. And, and more that there's that, that's been that's going up in this year's budget so we're in a wildly different situation we still have a very significant financial challenge our pensions are way underfunded and we've been doing a lot of work to reduce that debt service payments are will continue to go up and up and up the the cost of uh, uh, the salaries to be more competitive will go up and up and up so number one yeah our financial situation is bad it's much, much better than before, and it, but it will continue to be a challenge for the next 10, 15 years. And number two, yeah, there, we need to provide more services. I mean, everyone I hear from in the city is frustrated by something that the city hasn't done, right? Like, let's be real about that. And that will a lot of people that, that it, it will always be true, but to differing degrees. It's not either it will be or it won't be well, true. Well, one thing I'll say, kids but, need something to do. So now you have seven, is it seven or ten? Yeah, but, but just, I want to answer your, your yeah. just finish the answer to your first question. that We hear about public safety, we, and there's there's 12 new public safety positions in the city budget. As one example, there's seven new positions that are related to parks in the budget. That's because people have been asking for this. People have been really advocating for this. That costs more money. That costs more money, and so a portion of the tax change in the city is paying for those things as well. So it's a little bit of both. And it's less than inflation. Just so we're going to have an honest discussion about that. You have town halls coming up in three weeks in a row, right? Yeah, and I have a list of Yeah, the, tell public where they can go yell so at you about the budget. There's three of them. They're all at 6 p.m. March 21st, Benjamin Jepson School. March 28th, Beecher School. And then April 4th is Conte, uh, Conte Westfield School. And so I want to give you credit for in that budget part of the tax hike is because you were being more honest about what returns we can expect on our pension fund investments. And we, it's not just New Haven. Everybody lied about that Connecticut for about 30, 40 years. And so then we had more debt that gets carried over to other generations. When we got the federal money for the pandemic relief, could we have used that to strike some kind of bargain with our work, with our public unions to do a longer term fix to the pensions where the existing employees had their pension promises fulfilled in return for some kind of more realistic long-term pension plan that over the long-term could have saved us so that future mayors following Justin Elliker would not be every year scrounging how are you going to fill those holes? We were not allowed to use the ARP funding for pensions. 
Right, but you could be that I know they said they didn't could, want pants or ballots, but you could have had you could have creatively used money. Maybe, maybe. I mean, in theory, you didn't want to break in. Given, you didn't want to be West Haven and get arrested and brought, you know, a door down to the courthouse for like, you know, stealing the 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 federal money. But there were creative ways to use that money. Well, so, so I'm not sure what creative ways you're talking about. Well, we, like the centers you're opening for the youth and rec. Well, so that was a good. But use that's of not it. A, that's not pension related, right? right? What? And I guess in theory, we could have given police officers a huge one-time payment in exchange for them dramatically reducing their pensions not their but, pensions the next generation's pensions but that's a part of union negotiations right that's yeah. a, that's that's t- typically what uh, what happened and we're in negotiations with the with the police union right now and um but, but I, historically um what has sometimes happened is that it won't be changed for the existing employees right I'm not sure if American Rescue Plans are, uh, American Rescue Plan funds are related to that. They're not. You would and have a, to and agree. Right? There's lots of creative. But you want uh, to be and agreed. You don't want to be creative in the sense of being dishonest. Not only illegal, you get in trouble. You want to be honest too in how you use money. Yeah, and if there was some, I don't know, way that we could use ARPA funds to address long-term liabilities with pensions, I think. You know, open to that. We, I, I've, all, I've tried Governor to Lamont use, did use the, the windfall so, he used in other ways that enabled him to put six billion dollars more in the pension fund. That's going to save so much money mm-hmm. for the state over a lot of time. Yeah, and so we have done that to a certain extent uh, yeah. by uh, it, primarily infrastructure improvements that we might have borrowed for. Uh, like, like the like new snowplow. Yeah. yeah, I mean some city Car vehicles. We've expanded our capacity in some areas, like with the police cameras uh, or the real-time crime center, $4 million that went into that. Uh, investments, $5 million into park infrastructure improvements. And those uh, those investments not only are a great thing because people really want to see them, but they also mean that we don't have to borrow in the future to cover fixing different parks and infrastructure, things like that. So that's the approach that we've kind of taken to address some of the long-term costs that we would have incurred had we not had this funding. Justin Elliker running for a third to your term as mayor, New Haven. Got, getting it right every time now. If I say it enough times, it'll come out that way when I write the article. So Justin, policing, how has your thinking evolved on that? Do you think the same way about policing as you did? Do you think you made any mistakes you learned from? Yeah, so my, my thinking, I think, continues to involve, uh, evolve around policing. And, and I hope a lot of people out there feel the same way about it, right? Um, and I would say not policing, but public safety, right? How do we keep the community safe? And uh, throughout, uh, in particular, the first year with the murder of George Floyd and a lot of the deep conversations that we had as a community, nationally as well, with that, um, I have, I think, developed more of an understanding that not only is public safety very complicated to attain, but we've got to do many, many different things using all different departments to approach it. And that's, you know, we created Elm City Compass, the uh, crisis response team that engages with individuals that may not require necessarily policing service. We've expanded our partnerships with other towns. We've adopted a lot of new technology that's been really helpful with us, the cameras. Uh, uh, we have this um, a device that will stick it to someone's uh, a license plate or their car so that we don't have to get, engage in high-speed chases. Um, we have developed a program called Press that is similar to Youth Connect, but for adults, where uh, the, the different outreach workers and the city workers meet 
regularly to talk about a very small group of people that we believe are highly engaged or likely to be engaged in violence and how we can make sure that we intervene. We've done all these different things. I think now our challenge is coordinating these programs well because we have a lot of programs that have clear uh, record of success in many other communities in our own, but we've got to coordinate these much, much better. How about police culture or how they're trained or how they're disciplined? Any, do you think you've made any mistakes? I, so uh, I think that, you know, we've talked about this with during the George, George Floyd and uh, uh, the protests uh, after the, the murder of George Floyd. And um, I think initially I, I could have been more directly engaging. No, I know that was three years ago. But I mean, right. like, what about the police? Have you made any mistakes in any decisions about the police department? I, you know, I, uh, and you can bring up some examples, but I, I think in general, no. We've tried, I've tried very, very hard to follow my heart and follow what the, the right approach is to ensure accountability here. Um, you know, Randy Cox and what tragically happened to Randy Cox is an example where we worked very hard to make sure that we were responding quickly to make sure that something That's like really that going to be a budget again. killer. How's that going? Um, I know you can't talk about a negotiation that's underway, but is is this going to really kill us? Because we're only insured up to, what, $20 million? Yeah, I, I think the important thing, there's a number of important things here, but is to our focus to make sure this never happens again and to make sure that uh, there's justice, right? Um, and so there's multiple things going on at once. There's a, a, a criminal uh, prosecution of the officers and some of the officers involved. There's an internal affairs investigation that's ongoing uh, to determine whether or not discipline is, uh, is merited for the officers. Uh, and then there's a civil suit where uh, Randy Cox and his, his family are suing the city. Um, and you know all, the, all those things are on different tracks and I think the most important for us, for me, the most important thing, I'm the mayor of the city, I'm the mayor of Randy Cox, and everyone else in the city, I wanna make sure that we're making uh, decisions that are responsible, compassionate, uh, and ensure that something like this never happens. Well, I think the fact that you released We've done a lot so of additional training for all the, our officers to- All the video to, that you released originally, and not blaming Randy Cox, and having a police chief who was close to the people who were protesting, I think really helped us prevent a pretty bad situation, but, except for three years ago and not going to one protest. Have you made any mistakes in office you've learned from? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 yes. Because everyone makes mistakes. Yeah. The yeah. idea is that what do you learn from the mistakes? Right. Can right. you think of any mistakes since three years ago? Um, I, I, I don't know. Bring up some mistakes, Paul. And you, and it's not me. It's you. Yeah. It's like we don't agree. I mean, yeah, like, I think what? there's a, 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 over the years, there's been a lot of things that, um, you know, I'm, I, I think that, engaging with our partners in a positive way but fighting for things that um that i really care about are are things that are Im Im important um but like john stefano would say like i wanted to build that mall on long wharf and now i realized that was the wrong way to build our economy it was homegrown businesses and what makes the city distinctive that kind of thing right yeah i'm not sure if there's any major infrastructure project that we, we have that uh, was a was necessarily a mistake or any appointments you um, made or fighting I think, I, I think probably uh, being more proactive about literacy and making sure that we're pushing that and accepting that uh, in the Board of Education sooner uh, than we did is something that um, that I could have done better you did have a pandemic um, is the job fun depends on when you ask me no uh, overall it's, it's a, an incredible job it's no wonder so many people want this job right um, it's really rewarding. It is very, very challenging. Um, it's 24 seven, uh, 
but it is an incredible job. Well, what do you do for fun? Is work your fun, or do you, do you find yeah, ways to not spend, work and have fun? Yeah, time with my kids, going running. Um, I enjoy those things. It kind That's of right, you're a runner, helps right? Me, helps me kind of read. Do you do like marathons and stuff? I've only done one, um, but I do a lot of road races and, and just you know run run uh run and when you're and running are you thinking of problems in a different way it helps me process and kind of decompress um but i think the most fun i have is with my kids uh, we try we try to have friday nights where they're pizza nights and we all hang out together which without, pizza i'm not gonna make you're that not call. gonna mention okay no. the we, mayor's we try, not we gonna try to answer rotate. the question we try to rotate you rotate no comment, so no even political on friday night and what about um no i'm just political here we <laughs> we, we, we have our favorites but we just don't share them here what, uh, why are so many people running against you this year? It's a great job. <laughs> right? Who right. wouldn't want it? Well, Justin Elker, thank you so much for making time to come by Dateline New Haven, WNHHFM. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Good luck at Tent City today. Good luck working on the very tough challenges every day that face our city. Thanks to Harry Jost behind the controls. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience. Performing, I wish I knew how it'd feel to be free. From the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us every day and every night at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.